Hello, this is How to PhD, episode number 29. This week, we are going to be talking about the five most common mistakes we've seen in PhDs and how you can avoid them. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Aaron and I'm joined by my co-host Julia. Hello. And this is our delayed episode. We're actually having uh, a few weeks off uh, from work, um, but we're here anyway in a bit of a makeshift studio setup. So apologies if things don't sound like they usually do, Uh, but we're here to support you all today. Um, And this week we're actually taking a bit of a wider look at some of the most, uh, we decided why not, why not think about some of the most common mistakes that happen in PhDs. Um, And this week we've picked out five of the most common that we've experienced um, and things that you can do to try and avoid them and begin to correct them. So uh, let's get straight into it with what we're calling writing errors. So let's talk about the first of the most common errors in a PhD, uh, which we're calling writing errors. And I think one of the first things that you can avoid and you can spot is jargon. Okay, and I think the basic concept of this is to remember that, you know, not everybody who reads your thesis, even though the thesis is that final document at the end of the whole thing, uh, might be an expert in your area. Right. And by definition, you are the expert and and the most experienced person in what you're researching. Um, So things like advanced specialist concepts, uh, acronyms, uh, don't assume that the person reading will have that knowledge. And I think that's the really important thing. And so what you can do is to create, say, a table of acronyms, right? And so this is a pretty common thing. It's a table which has all the acronyms listed uh, and then exactly what they mean. Um, And particularly with things like conferences, that's another good place where you can think about the, the kind of wide range of audiences that are going to be reading your work um, and to, to consider that they may not always know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so I think um, if you if you finish with drafting your thesis or your paper, it's always good practice to just check again that you have introduced yeah. your acronym um, somewhere. So, um, for example, um, I used um, Sexual and Reproductive Health Services and shortened that to SRHS because it was just so long so and after you've introduced it you're then allowed to use it throughout the acronym but i think sometimes you can just remind the reader again after a chapter or each chapter or how you want to do it and what the acronym is standing for and especially if you're if you're using a lot of them but um, it's just the final polishing step and will leave a good impression with the examiners and exactly i think it's one of those things just just be practical about it uh, and just see it from the point of view of the reader uh, and as you say, remind them of it if they if it needs reminding. If it's sort of thirty pages later, then remind them. Yeah, more importantly, I think um, because it's not a matter of style, but actually of the content or linking to the content is that I sometimes see when supervising students that they chuck in sentences that um, in the method, especially in the method section, I think where they know for this method they should use or should say these sentences that it's good practice to do mm. that. But then it becomes clear that they're not really sure what that means. Um, so I think often um, when talking about sampling, for example, and systematic reviews, there are certain things you have to mention, for example, about the Prisma checklist and students write that stuff in because they know that they should do that. But um, then when you um, ask like, oh, actually, where is your Prisma checklist? Where have you actually completed it? And they're like, oh, I wasn't really sure what it means. Mm. I just put it in because I know I should do it. So I think... Rather than using fancy terms, the most important thing is always to describe what you've been doing 
and why. Um, and yeah. so just be transparent about what you've done. And um, if you're using fancy terms and make really sure you know what they're standing for and that you actually um, use whatever you said you, you did. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. I mean, giving an example, it wasn't even a fancy term. And perhaps this is really embarrassing to admit this. But I remember in my Viva, I had put in error bars into my graphs um, without probably uh, properly understanding what an error bar is which is really embarrassing to say out loud but the examiner called me out on it and uh, I, I honestly said yeah I just just put them in on excel and I'm not 100% sure what they are um, and so always I think yeah as you say whether it's stats or terminology always know what you're saying um, and I think this links quite nicely then to the sort of the kind of real final step which is around proper citations and these are really simple errors that you can fix and, and look out for uh, so for example if it's a direct quote from a paper uh, you need to put the page number in that in-text reference so you'd have the name the year and then the page number it's come from um, and doing simple things like that and and I think when you look at then the final reference list um, making sure that all of the information is correct in that final reference list as well. Mm. Um, and I think this is one of the ironies of using technology is that, you know, while reference managers can help you manage all your references, sometimes when you bring them in from Scholar or Science Direct, uh, they can actually be missing bits of information, which you might not realize until you actually put it in the reference list. And so mm. using, you can use the tech to sort of say, you can right click on a reference and click update the record. Uh, but again, just Taking that time to just manually go through and make sure that everything is as it should be is another very simple mm. error you can avoid. And that's also true for figures and diagrams. So if you're copying a figure or a diagram on image um, from somewhere, uh, from a book or a journal paper, then you need to say that this was coming from, I don't know, author and year. Um, so put the reference behind that. Or often I think what we're doing is adapting um, um, figures or diagrams. And then again, just be really transparent about um what is your contribution, right? And what is someone else's? So you can say this figure was adapted um, by by the author and then put the references. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and there was a final, final point, Julia, that you wanted to mention around sort of subjective language. Yes, yeah, I think always reminding yourself that you're writing a journal paper or a thesis and not, for example, a press release or a news article, which has a... Um, kind of a different style and um, for example when I, I was doing an internship before at a communications department writing press releases and um, there you often use for example quotes from opinions of people so the head of the this organization said that but in, in scientific writing you want to have it really concise and um, show the most important evidence research evidence um, rather than relying on what one person of one organization yeah. said. Yeah, and I think, you know, just using things like avoiding words like hopefully or... Subjective um, language. Yeah, subjective language like this was a really great result and things mm. like that. You know, those those are things that, you know, great in normal language and, and when you're presenting and stuff. But for written academia, you, we want to try and avoid that sort of stuff. So hopefully that, that's covered kind of writing errors, which is a quite a large area. Um, but that's giving you some of the, the most important things to look out for and some of the easiest things you can correct uh, with a good proofread. So let's talk about the second most common mistake that we've seen, which is around not creating a story. 
So let's talk about another common mistake, which is not creating a story. And so effectively, what we mean by this is not outlining your chapter before you start writing it. Uh, and there are different words for this. It could be called a skeleton document or an outline. Um, and this is so, so important for, for mul many reasons. And essentially what you're doing is creating a sort of flow of what you're going to talk about uh, before you start putting words on the page. And and personally, I used to hate doing this because I just wanted to start filling in that empty Word document, right? I mean, the worst thing you can look at is an empty Word doc with that kind of blinking cursor, like blinking at you. Um, but it's really important if you just take a step away from the computer, get a piece of paper uh, or a kind of notepad document and and just, just sort of create a flow diagram which shows the story of the chapter that you're writing or even the story of your entire thesis. Um, and so really look at this as a chance to understand if someone with no knowledge can understand at least your train of thought of why you're doing what you're doing. And, and I can't emphasize how important this is. Um, and so essentially the technique that we use is called the why technique right and we've mentioned this before um and I'm, i've just i've just written a very um kind of basic example uh if anyone here is a biologist um then you'll probably be laughing at this example i thought i'll just try and create one but let's say um for example you know your specific research is around i'm looking at cell growth under certain conditions right and that's that's really cool right that's specific um but then why Right. And then you'd say, well, because it's not been looked at before. OK, why? Um, because there were limitations that no longer exist. Um, and why? Why do we want to do this in the first place? Right. And this will improve the delivery of uh, certain medications. Um, and but why do we care about that? Right. And, and this is important because certain diseases are on the rise and this is a, a, a problem that's affecting the world right now. And so you can see if we then flip this round the other way and we go backwards through that story, there's a very clear link from what the problem is in the world right down to your specific research question. And so this can be difficult to do going in that kind of forwards direction where you're starting wide and going specific. Uh, but if you flip it around and start with your specific area and then just work backwards, just ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why are we doing this now? what's important, who's it going to affect, and then eventually you'll actually get yourself a very nice story which you can then base the whole of your thesis mm. on. Uh, and I think creating a story is one of the most common mistakes. And, and if you don't create that story, what someone will start thinking is, well, this is great research, but what's the... what's the yeah. application? Like, what, where, where does this fit in, in the wider scheme of things? Yeah, and creating the story um, helped me as well at the beginning of my PhD, if you remember, to get my elevator pitch. Because <laughs> I was never sure what to say when people asked me, what are you doing in your PhD? Um, and at first, I just literally threw like the researcher question at them. I said, like, oh, I'm looking at how to optimize um, sexual health services in pharmacies. And mm, then usually I didn't get really a reaction from people. But then I thought, okay, what is actually... Why am I doing that, right? What is the bigger impact? And then um, I kind of rephrased it to, actually, I'm looking at how we can take pressure from the NHS and from um, primary health care, um, so from um, sexual health clinics and from general practices. Um, and that's basically, in a, 
in the grand scheme what my research is doing right and I think suddenly you have a topic to talk about like because everybody relates to the NHS and so I think um yeah it can just help you really think why you're doing what you're doing and um you you said like chapter to chapter right to draw your story but as you said um I think it's also important to look at the thesis as a whole because mm, often yeah. examiners will um read the background and then the discussion and I think if the story doesn't link so if you really set up nice to your research question in the background section but then um the examiner comes to the discussion and is wondering oh actually they didn't really answer the research question then that really is is a problem because um you didn't do what you, what you claimed you would be doing so yeah the story has to be consistent throughout yeah exactly that um and so i think that's hopefully if you do those things you, you won't knock the story out of the park in the first try it can be something that you kind of adjust over time and you tweak as you begin to present it and get more familiar with it uh but it's something to really start thinking about and it's never too late to create a story mm-hmm. i created mine uh pretty much in the last couple of months of the doctorate um uh, and other people start mm-hmm. really early with it so it's never too late it's something that's always worthwhile doing and it's going to help so much with so many of the uh aspects of your phd yeah and uh, i think what we heard about is this prototyping right you so can prototype your abstract so even if you haven't um collected your data yet you could um start writing a thesis abstract and just thinking best case so what are you expecting that your data that you collect will show and just like to draw a story so the abstract for your whole thesis what story are you do you think you're gonna be telling right so to have an idea at the beginning a vision of what you think you'll find and what impact that will have um, and then you can adapt it of course while you go um, and collect your data and analyze it you can then change uh, according to the results um, this thesis abstract that you drafted and also see oh I, this went differently than I expected to why do you think that is right so I think it helps you um, to yeah keep an overview of the PhD from yeah, the beginning exactly that so let's talk about one of the uh, the third most common mistake that we've seen uh, which is around not managing your time well So let's talk about not managing your time well, which is one of the most common errors we've seen in PhDs. Um, And so look, a very simple way is to use a day planner, right? And I've seen this uh, very interesting thing on Instagram. A lot of the followers that we have are posting screenshots from this app called uh, Forest App. Uh, Now, I haven't actually used it personally, but basically it's a way of maintaining productivity um, of uh, and by by sort of keeping you from being distracted by your phone. So you have to keep this app open and essentially the longer you keep the app open and not use other apps on the phone uh oh, this kind of this wow. this tree grows and you fill a forest and so the more <laughs> trees that that no that way. are that are sort of grown to full height um <laughs> are shows kind of you you had a really productive day um and the minute you leave that app that tree dies so it's Aww. a way of yeah and it's it's pretty it sounds pretty savage um but look it's it, that's one way of doing it and i've seen a lot of people using that it looks very cool um but essentially you know break down hour by hour you know if you're not feeling productive and focused then then just break down your tasks and we've talked about this before um and, and it's particularly breaking down the tasks into their sort of more individual elements. Um, so, for example, you know, don't just put a, a goal of saying, I'm going to finish the chapter. You know, say, I want to finish the argument on this particular thing. I want to finish this paragraph. I want to analyze 
this particular piece of data using this method. You know, that, that's, you know, going into that kind of level, granular detail will help you really manage that day better. Um, and I think it's one of the first key things of, of time management. Yeah, and I think a lot of students do underestimate really how long writing can take. And I, I surely underestimated at the beginning. Because I think for everything that you write, whether it's a chapter or journal paper, I think you probably usually have like two rounds of revision, at least I think after you got feedback from supervisors, or at least that's how I did it. I um, got a first round of um, comments from my supervisors, I addressed them, then send it back to for them to check whether they're happy with that. And there's usually something else that they then want to change. And so if your deadline for something for, for example, a submission to a conference or, or whatever is in two weeks time and you haven't sent your first draft, that's quite late, I think, usually, because um, you have to think that it's not um, just a one person job writing a journal usually right you will have your supervisors usually on the paper and they will have to have a look and i think a good time estimate or fair is probably to give seven to ten days for your supervisor mm, to read yeah. it right if somebody asks me can you read my chapter until tomorrow that's usually a bit more difficult right so i think agreeing on a timeline and giving time enough time for them to look at it is really really important and unfortunately i think a lot of time this is what goes wrong and then students get under time pressure and in the end it, the work is not as good as it could have been and that's really a shame if you think the person is 100% capable of writing an amazing paper but there was just not enough time. Yeah and I think this really all connects to this idea of um, particularly when you have these plans for your day and your week is to create a sort of shared ownership of that plan uh, both with your supervisors, mm. but also let, letting other people you work with know around kind of how you're going to work and, the, you know, sort of goals for the week and things like that. That can, mm. and, and just going into that process of writing down your goals mm. um, has been shown to kind of motivate you to accomplish those goals as well. So it's it's an important thing. Yeah, I think you're so right in um, creating this shared ownership because unfortunately I have seen that students said, oh, my supervisor said they would send me feedback on Monday, but they didn't. So sometimes it's not your fault, it's your supervisor's fault that they didn't agree to what they said they would. So I think what's really important is to write that down in an email or, or like have it written down that the supervisor said they would come back to you on Monday. Because if they just say it in the meeting, you don't have proof for that right and if that keeps on happening uh, again and again and again and maybe you want to switch your supervisor um, then I think you have good evidence like written down that they did not do the work that they said they would yeah. Um, so yeah exactly that is, is always the best thing I think Really important stuff. And actually, this links very, very well to the next point and next most common mistake that we see in PhDs and possibly one of the most important things to try and rectify early on, uh, which is around not fostering your supervisor relations. So let's talk about one of the next most common mistakes uh, in a PhD, which is around not fostering those supervisor relationships. Now, we talked a lot about this shared plan or creating shared ownership of a plan. Uh, and it's important to remember uh, that this works both ways, right? And just as Julia mentioned around kind of setting a date for feedback, you know, it, it works for both when you will deliver and for when they need to deliver as well. Um, and you have to remember that you are their student, right? It's their job to support you. And, and I think it's important to have this mindset that they are not doing you a favor by by meeting you right it's not them kind of 
taking time out of their day to to throw you a bone, right? This is you are owed that support, and you have every right to demand that support as well, right? And they should not be taking you as a student if they don't have the time to support you in that. And so you have every right to sort of demand that support and and not feel guilty about asking them for extra sessions or if you need. Uh, you know, a, a session every week or every couple of days, that's absolutely within your right. And I think having that mindset is the first important step in beginning to foster those relationships and particularly communicate those expectations uh, to your supervisor. Um, what comes after that? You know, maybe we can do another episode on kind of, you know, managing those more difficult situations. But I think the first step of expressing that is one of the first key things you can do to try and avoid a lot of those uh, challenging situations that, that come up. And of course, you know, building on that, I think, is around uh, is really remembering that, you know, you are the sort of budding expert in in what you're doing. You know, you're there doing that PhD because your supervisor doesn't know the answer. Right. You're the person who's going to be giving that answer to to whatever your problem is. Uh, So don't be afraid to challenge your supervisors and and sort of call out anything that doesn't really make sense to you, right? Yeah, and unfortunately, I've really seen that um, from students that um, came to us for advice and that their supervisors were not familiar with the methods they were doing and were really giving advice that was incorrect. And um, so I think it's always important to check those, just to be aware that your supervisor Mm. is not all-knowing, right? and they also might not have time to really familiarize with the um, method that you're doing. So, of course, that's your job to to find out what, how the method works that you're, you're doing. So I'm really advising everyone to get training on the method you want to use. And also, if you feel you need it to get a supervisor um, or, yeah, or an expert, maybe there's someone else in the university or even outside your university that has used the method before and get can support you with that and I think offering for example someone else an authorship on your paper if they agree to support you I think that's better than um, trying it yourself and and struggling through um, on your own and then maybe you don't get the work published because you missed a, a small step or something like that so get support and always don't always rely that your supervisor is an expert method yes exactly a very nice segue onto our final common mistake, um, which is all around using the wrong method for the question you're trying to answer. Okay, so let's talk about the most, the final most common mistake that we've seen in PhDs, which is around using the wrong method for the question that um, that the research is trying to answer. I've seen students who have amazing research questions and sometimes there are people who are already working and they're doing, for example, clinical work in the field and they come up with amazing um, questions based on the work that they've been doing and find really important gaps, research gaps. And they're really enthusiastic and um, about like answering that research question. But and it's really heartbreaking then to see sometimes um, that they end up choosing a wrong research method or what I mean by wrong is a method that doesn't answer their question or is not able to answer their question. So, for example, I had a student um, with a really good clinical research question um, and they decided to do a systematic review. But the problem was that there has not been done any research on her question, which shows how innovative her question is, right? If mm, nobody in the yeah. world really has done that. So amazing, amazing, amazing question. But then there were no studies um 
that they could find that could answer a question. And that's then a problem because, um, yeah, it's it's not a valid method. So what they, the, the person should have done is actually collecting their own um, quanti quantitative data, clinical data and analyze it. But um, so in, in the end, this person got a really good mark for designing the research question. But then from there on the methods um, and the results discussion, it, it Again, it links back to our first point about our, the story, because th the story could not be finished because there was no data um, to answer it. So I think it, it sometimes might, at the beginning, you might feel impatient. You just want to crack on, right? You want to start collecting data and actually do something. But I think it's really important at the beginning of your PhD to take time and familiarize yourself with a range of different um, data collection methods, research methods, um, and it will help write you the justification for the method that you end up using and also in the future I think you will have an advantage because you already got training on a variety of methods that you can then use later on so really spend time on carefully selecting your research method getting feedback from different people to know did you really choose the best method for your question because examiners will will challenge that. Yeah, in the end, it's all about using the right tool for the job, right? And uh, recently, we've been doing a lot of DIY stuff. And, um, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> here's an example. You know, we tried to, we were doing some of the bathroom renovation stuff, and we couldn't remove this particular sealant in the corner um, with this particular tool. And we switched tools, and, and it just came off within in seconds, right? And we were struggling for ages trying to remove it with this other thing. And it's the same thing with the research, right? I mean, it's your methodology is the tool that you're using to answer the question um and so you know you want to pick the right thing that's going to to answer that you know and um for example you know in in my phd you know it was it was very very clear that there wasn't a whole lot of literature at that time on autonomous vehicles uh and so you know if i had done a very specific sort of quantitative questionnaire which asked very specific things then perhaps we wouldn't have kind of explored the range of different options and kind of thoughts that people were having on on the topic um and so using a qualitative method where we could explore kind of a range of different things in interviews was a fantastic way of exploring a, a wide range of ideas um and things where there wasn't a clear answer and so mm -hmm. really think about choosing the right tool for the question i think that's so important and the ways you can do that is of course talking to your supervisor, uh, talking to people who have worked in a similar field, um, use the internet as a fantastic range of resources on YouTube. Uh, I often find YouTube is better than going to, say, Google and finding a kind of methods book. You can often mm. find a lot of kind of overview information about different methods you can use on YouTube uh, and, and really trying to understand exactly what that tool is uh, is so important and mm. it will save you so much trouble um, and I guess this links back to that previous thing around you know if your supervisor suggested something and you feel like it's not quite right uh, don't be afraid to call that out and say look should we not be using this thing Right. And uh, I think often, you know, not to labor this point, um, but often supervisors might have a kind of preconception of what they want out of the PhD. They might want to use a particular model or a particular method. Um, but you, again, as the budding expert, use the person who's actually on the ground answering the question, um, have that chance to potentially call that out if you think there's a better way of doing it. So don't be afraid uh, to call that out. 
So I think that's a rundown of five of the most common mistakes that that, that we've spotted. Um, hopefully that's given you some ideas to kind of things to watch out for, but hopefully some confidence that you'll be able to solve these if you ever encounter them in your PhD journey. So thank you so much for listening to another episode of How to PhD. As always, if you know someone who you think could benefit from this episode, then please do share it with them. And if you like listening to How to PhD, then you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts uh, or over on Audible, as we found out recently, um, or by visiting our website at howtophd.show and leaving a small donation through Buy Me a Coffee. We've had a huge number of uh, supporters over there in the in the last weeks it's really wonderful and we're always so uh, grateful for all the wonderfully generous support uh do get in touch contact at howtophd.show is the email for the show one-to-one at howtophd.show is the uh, email address if you're interested in talking to us directly which we're offering a free 30 minutes uh just to see if it's the right thing for you uh twitter and instagram at howtophdshow and as always thanks to jobs.ac.uk for or sharing our show on their networks uh, and introducing our show to to more people uh, around the world. Next week, Julia, uh, we're a little bit unsure uh, of sort of timings, aren't we? Yes, so we had um, a guest, which was really exciting for us. um, And we have some really, really interesting stuff, I think, that we talked to our guest about and that will be really helpful in giving you loads of practical tips on how to manage um, yourself and be a creative researcher. Um, We're just still in the editing and it has taken us a lot of time. That's completely (laughs) on us. I think we didn't find a time to um, properly uh, properly edit everything for you guys. But hopefully um, it will be released very soon. And yeah. Yeah, it's some really great content and uh, I think there's a lot of stuff there which is going to be really useful um, and hopefully we'll we'll get that out in time for next week. If not, we'll keep you all updated over on Twitter, uh, but hopefully you'll be seeing that next week. So have a wonderful week, everybody, and we will see you all next time. <laughs>